0: Together, we're going to dive deep into raw and honest conversations with real people. My hope is that through these stories, you too will be inspired and ready to tackle whatever's holding you back or breaking your heart. Then you'll be free to live a life of purpose and true fulfillment. I promise it's possible. Let's Relevate. Today on the Relevate Podcast, I'm truly honored to share one man's journey out of addiction. Bradley Van Landingham is a walking miracle and is here today to share his story in this episode of the Relevate Podcast called Spared. Bradley V, welcome to the Relevate Podcast.
1: Oh, thank you. So happy to be here. Wow. Totally honored.
0: What what a journey it's been for you to, to be in this seat today. And for our friendship, and I'm just so glad you're here to share your experience in the hopes of of helping others who may be going down a similar path or or having a similar journey. So thank you very much.
1: Definitely. I totally feel like it is a responsibility of mine to um, talk about it, you know, in hopes to help other people.
0: Yeah, sounds good. So let's start off talking about your family and the early years.
1: Okay, so yeah, definitely have a a big family. You
0: have an amazing family. I
1: have an amazing family. I am extremely lucky to have such a loving family who never gave up on me, and they've just always been there for me and loved me through everything that I've done. Um, it's pretty amazing, you know. I, I I'm just beside myself, honestly, and so happy to be back in Georgia mm-hmm. to be around my family. Yeah. I've kind of traveled all over the place, but yeah, I was born in Georgia, was born in Rome, Georgia, over on the, um, Western edge of Georgia. And, um,
0: it's amazing. You don't have a Southern accent.
1: Yeah. I had one for a while and then, uh, I even lived in New York and kept it through that. And I think when I went to California, it just disappeared.
0: <laughs> so
1: grew up in Rome. Um, I was born in Rome and had all my grandparents live there. My older sister, Misty, she was six years older than me, so she was always a huge light in my life. She was always very motherly, and um, she thought I was hers from the Aww. from the get-go. So. <laughs> um, and I have a younger sister, Brooke, she's four years younger than me, And she was born in Chattanooga.
0: So you had, you came from a great family and a great home life. Where did, where did you begin to kind of get off base? Did something happen or?
1: I think that I always had a wild side to me. As far back as I can remember, I was pretty wild. You know, even when I was born, I was talking to my dad the other day, and he said that I opened my eyes and looked at him. And he literally said, oh, no. <laughs> and my mom was like, what's that about? And, um, he, you know, he literally said, oh, no, out loud. So uh, I think he was pretty wild, too, when he was younger. And, um, you know, definitely had it some in my genes. My grandpa was pretty wild himself. So... Been told that I take after him more than um, (laughs) other people in my family. Probably say around five or six is when it, I started acting out more. Mm -hmm. And,
0: um, what did that look like?
1: I remember like breaking stuff, like windows, Mm -hmm. stuff like that. And I remember lying about it, you know, just acting out, was, would run around and, um, Take rocks out of other people's yards and sell them to other neighbors and stuff. <laughs> and you know, I was five or six, and I don't know where I learned that. Wow, well, you know, but uh, kind of
0: started being naughty.
1: Started being naughty pretty young.
0: When did you when you when did you start reaching for a substance to numb or medicate or?
1: I always thought that I was wanting to do substances just just because. You know, I I started at a young age. I remember stealing beers from my grandpa. And I remember, like, smoking cigarettes pretty young. Probably, I remember it being, like, 12. But Mm -hmm. um, my other grandfather told me he remembers finding cigarettes on me when I was, like, 8 or 9. That's tiny. And I I still don't know if that's completely correct. Mm -hmm. You know, I got prescribed to Ritalin really young. I was 5. I was in kindergarten. And I remember the Ritalin. It definitely made me feel different. You know, I remember it made me not as talkative and quieter. So I didn't really feel like myself. You know, I probably smoked weed for the first time I was in sixth grade. And I'd grown up going to a, a private elementary school and went into the middle school and had to leave that middle school halfway through sixth grade. So I think that, honestly... A lot of things that people were worried about and saying um i kind of grew into what they were saying mm-hmm. but, you mm-hmm. know like i had never smoked pie when i was at that at the private school and almost did immediately when i went into public school you know like i had the private school i would made some of the best friends that uh, i ever had at that point mm-hmm. um i had a really good group of guys we were all pretty wild but like really good connections we had a good group yeah so and going into the the public school i was just like felt like like i just walked away from something that you know i didn't really want to Mm -hmm. so moved across town and didn't really know anyone around and i guess that's you know how i handled it
0: yeah so, did you find community with like a different group of people that are smoking weed and what yeah, happened?
1: Cigarettes and then the weed. I honestly, the first, I bought the joint in front of a dare officer. Mm-hmm. And like, I think I was just like, maybe even crying to get, mm-hmm. you Western. know, in trouble or something. And, you know, while I was doing it, I had no clue that that's what I was doing. But mm-hmm. looking back, you know. Definitely, kind of crying out for help. You know, my my parents divorced when I was six. You know, just seeing them getting remarried and stuff, I just kind of turned into a punk. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, when do you feel your addiction really began to take hold?
1: Again, I think other people saw it before I ever was able to see it. Mm-hmm. You know, they like my family had an intervention with me probably around that same time that. I smoked pot for the first time, mm-hmm. maybe a little bit after that. Wow.
0: So that was, you were how old again?
1: Probably 13 or four, in between 12 and 13. Wow. Um, so what,
0: what was your reaction to that?
1: I remember having a, a smirk on my face mm-hmm. and shut down and want to hear it. Yeah. You know? And basically. So they were concerned about you at that were. age? I mean, it wow. was my grandmother's brother and their kids. It was like the whole family. You know, so it wasn't just, like, my immediate, like, cousins yeah. and
0: everything. It mm-hmm. was,
1: there was about 15 of them. I was a jerk
0: mm-hmm. about it. Yeah.
1: You know, and they uh, they just cared. Yeah. And, like, I remember them telling me that, you know, they they wanted good for me. Mm-hmm. And they just didn't think that if I continued doing what I was going to do, that I was going to have that life that they wanted for me. That's some heavy stuff.
0: So um, let's talk about the first time you, you overdosed. In your words, let's just kind of talk about.
1: So I'll, I'll back up a little bit. You would ask like when my addiction really got bad. Mm-hmm. And so I had gone to college. And that's when I first started drinking really. Um, never really drank through high school. And ended up failing out of college and moving out to Seattle, Washington, to help my aunt and uncle build a house out there. Stayed out there for like six or seven months. And I was 20 years old at that point. And was having trouble meeting like kids my age and everything. And, you know, I was definitely provided for and I had family that I never really get to see a lot. And it was really a nice gesture they did, but... Um, i was getting ready to turn 21 wanted to be around people my age that i knew that i grew up with so moved back home and was at a party and that's when i got introduced to meth and it was immediately um that was the first time where i i knew that i was addicted you know like it wasn't anyone telling me it was it was pretty obvious that something mm-hmm. else would change so, um, that lasted probably from the first time I was introduced to it, maybe six or seven months until I had my first overdose and it was literally like I was just doing whatever at that point. Um, before that, you know, I, uh, there was, I definitely had drawn a lot of lines mm-hmm. in the sand on like, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't want to do this because, yeah you know. But at that, at that point, it was all bets were off. And so um, I was running wide open and staying up for weeks at a time. Okay. Know, it was so
0: what what does that mean?
1: Staying up.
0: You, I mean, you were not sleeping at I all. I was
1: not sleeping. I think there was a two-month period where I maybe slept like 10 to 15 hours. And I was completely hiding from my family at that point.
0: How do you even function with no sleep? I mean, that's just...
1: I don't know if you can call it functioning. Yeah, you know?
0: and you were just high all the time.
1: Mm-hmm. Didn't really leave the house much. We go to the bars.
0: Mm-hmm. You know? Were you like in community with other people using meth? Yeah. And what, what was your family doing during this period?
1: My mom had actually moved to Atlanta and left me the house in Rome to take care of. So, and you know, I was letting um, bad people come in. Like a lot of her jewelry got stolen, and um, you know, a ring that uh, my dad had given her, you know, got stolen. That that one probably hurt the most. Yeah, you know? but um, yeah, it definitely wasn't being responsible. Mm-hmm. And you know, they were everyone was busy with their lives, and I talked to him on the phone and sounded fine. And my older sister showed up one day, and you know, I remember her calling him and be like, "Oh, he's." green (laughs) and that was she still you know she talked to me about it you know sometime in the last year Mm -hmm. and she was like I felt bad like that was the first time I felt like I was telling on you but she was like you you know I didn't know what to do but other than that like everyone thought I was okay Mm -hmm. you know functioning going to work somehow but
0: (laughs) it's um, amazing
1: yeah very very amazing you know, but ended up overdosing, and I had gone to Atlanta to go see some friends, hung out for a while, and then went to go drink a, a drink, and someone had spiked it, you know, with a couple of different chemicals, and I immediately knew that something was wrong. I remember talking to some people on the way to the the car, and my friend was like, Brad, come on, and you know, Still being talkative and friendly, but um, of course, <laughs> ended up grabbing a hold of a a pole on the side of the road and my friend said that I swung out. Um I almost came inches from my head getting hit by a van. It was driving right there and I fell out and um was laying there and we were right there at under- underground Atlanta so there's police everywhere and they saw it happen i think the card honked so they Mm -hmm. immediately called the ambulance grady memorial came and picked me up and um, my friend who was with me ran of course but he he knew i didn't have an id in my pocket too so he found somebody to call my family he didn't call but he got someone to call my family and tell them ambulance had picked me up and that I was going to be at John Doe because I didn't have an ID. So yeah, mm. I was 21. um And you know, my, my whole family showed up and um the chaplain at the hospital had taken my mom into the chapel there and told her that I wasn't going to make it. And, you Doctors were sitting there. and Nobody uh, thought I was gonna make it. They gave me like two shots of adrenaline into my heart, and mm-hmm. um, like I was probably gonna be a vegetable. They thought so. Then they, the doctor, decided to let my mom, and my uncle Jace, go in so they could pray over me, so they could kind of say their goodbyes or whatever. And Uncle Jay had just started working. In, uh, at North Point And so He walked back And immediately started praying And He said as soon as he put his hand On me he just felt like a bolt of lightning And um, I sat up Opened my eyes And uh, he kind of always called me His, his little Lazarus <laughs> Since then uh, But it was weird Like I was immediately um, I was immediately there and communicating.
0: And such a miracle. I've I've heard Jace tell that story and he, he talks about the, the physic the physical feel of that jolt touching his hand when he touched your chest. And you were back.
1: Yeah. And I like I kind of remember like the dream state before that. You know, I've um, just kind of always remembered like a feeling of, you know, like I wasn't done yet. But, you know, when I came back that time, I did, I felt different. Um, I felt like I had done also, some damage. Oh, really. Yeah. I, that was to one your, of the first to thought, your body, to your to brain, my body, to, to, you. to my brain. It was a huge fear that I had done mm-hmm. damage to my brain. And it scared me. I was self-conscious about it for a long time, you know. And um, immediately, though, you know, like I had my whole family there. They were all coming in and um, just felt super overwhelmed, you know, (laughs) at this thing that I'd been hiding. And, um, you know, it was out in the open and 21 years old. Had friends coming to see me, but like, I mean, my family was there, like, huge support. They're like, "All right, what are we gonna do?" And you know, I somehow convinced them I was in there for three days um, in the hospital, and um, somehow convinced them that you know I could, I could control it. Like, this was a slip up, but like, I'm stronger. And so I didn't get any treatment after that, which is. Kind of crazy you know but that's um, how convincing and manipulative I could be you know and honestly I probably believe myself mm-hmm. that I could control it um, I've always been a pretty stubborn guy and
0: yeah well, and that's I think that's common is especially with the opioid overdoses it's like people will overdose and get admitted to the hospital they'll bring them back and then they'll leave. And now go start using again. It's just such a vicious cycle.
1: So, you know, after that, I I got a job. And um,
0: did you stop using after that?
1: I did. Were you I able was able to stop using. I was um, able. I I scared myself pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, eventually, though, you know, some of the people i was running around with they crept back in my life Mm -hmm. um not trying to put that on them at all you know i started getting bored as well got the girl i was with pregnant around that time too you know so i mean i definitely let the let the devil ease back in my life Mm -hmm. you know without really putting much of a fight um and you know i would teeter in and um get back out I put my foot back in and um, so it was it was a bad cycle you know I was doing a lot better than I was before you know because like I had realized what what could happen Um, like I realized I was hanging with with bad people too it sucked like it was people that I had grown up with and it's not that they're bad people it's just that they were they were dealing d- d- t- with addiction <laughs> too, you know, and that took me a long time to even realize, you know, that like mm-hmm. I've kind of been in the back of my mind, even if not. We're just partying. Yeah. yeah. So, um, but I did eventually quit doing it. Um, we ended up losing the baby and when that happened, um, you know, so much shame, you know, like I I knew it. it was my fault for not just staying out and staying away from it. So um when that happened, um I walked away from it. Uh pretty much walked away from everybody really at that point. You know, I'd had the overdose, just lost this um this child mm-hmm. and she had carried it I think for six or seven months. So, so um, sorry. You know and all All that happened pretty fast, you know, so at that point, you know, my relationship with the girl fell apart, just like so many relationships when things like that happen, you know, and you had drugs in the mix, and it's not good. So Ended up hitchhiking across the country, and that's what really kind of just started me not looking back, like I hitchhiked from Asheville, North Carolina to Portland, Oregon in three days, and I was just like all right, like I don't even need anybody. Like I can do this on my own. I'm just going to go live a life. And I didn't tell anyone for years about my overdose or losing that kid. I just buried it down Mm -hmm. and kind of um, built this other life, you know, and um, didn't think anyone really needed to know that. So So you just
0: started fresh on the West Coast.
1: um, Kind of. Just bounced around I think I went to like forty something states over the next two years just travelling and seeing music. I'd be lying to you if I said it wasn't fun, you know, like I think I think part of me really needed that to get mm-hmm. away. Within two years of that first overdose I had met Jamie, my son's mom. Mm-hmm. Eventually, um her and I kind of built a relationship and I remember the first thing her mom said to me. Jamie's mom was, don't get her pregnant. <laughs>
0: mm, <laughs> and the, uh guess what happened? About
1: the next time we saw we so we went on another tour and went and saw music and that's um we dated not a very long time but mm. had a beautiful son. So.
0: And his name is
1: Dakota Bradley. And um and
0: he has his daddy's green eyes, doesn't
1: he? Yeah. Mm. He was born two and a half years after my overdose.
0: So then lightning struck twice. You want to walk us through what happened then, Brad?
1: Yeah, fast forward probably 15, 14 years from the last overdose. And, um, you know, things had gotten repetitive. So I had, I think I told you, like, I I did stop with the hard drug use, like, Mm -hmm. I guess what I call my kryptonite things that like changed how I felt I guess I I hit another rough patch in my early 30s and for whatever reason decided to start using um, drugs I knew were not good for me and started this cycle of I would use for like nine months and then straighten up and then make the decision to use again when I would know like this is a terrible idea is going to like destroy everything that I've been working for and I would say screw it do it you know even though I knew the outcome and bounced back and forth from California and Tennessee um, a couple times and decided to come back to Georgia and I was signing up for um, college I was going to go back to school supposed to start like a week later and was just like partying drinking a lot and yeah ended up At a party one night, like, I hurt my back, which a couple of days later, you know, made me have the choice to go get opiates. And even though I knew that, like, you know, in this part of the country especially, that it's killing people. You know, I've warned other friends who had, like, more of a habit than I ever had. You know, like, dude, watch out. It's not a good idea to do that. Like, I knew better.
0: And when you say you got opiates, you didn't go to the, a doctor and, and get it, right? No. Where Where did you get them?
1: Just through sources that I knew. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I mean, it's not very hard in this area to find someone that knows somebody. Mm-hmm. Sadly, you know. So honestly, wasn't really wanting to use them to get high i was honestly in pain one thing led to another and i was just in a situation to where that was available and got it and was using it you know probably used it three or four times before i actually overdosed Mm. so i honestly wasn't using and they were they were
0: pills right No.
1: No. no no it was in powder form okay but um snorting it wasn't injecting it Mm -hmm. or anything and literally like the tiniest amounts you know because I thought it looked funny and Mm -hmm. like I said I know what's going on in this area so I was trying to you know be as careful as I could be
0: and and you mean in terms of the drugs being laced with like fentanyl or something yeah other than just the opioid yeah so you were you were fearful of that yeah I thought it looked
1: I thought it looked different and funny so I was definitely had had fear mm-hmm. of I, I wasn't trying to like overdose, you know. Yeah. So, but yeah, I was. Um, I'd been up all night and went to go eat lunch with some friends. And um, before we left uh, the restaurant, I went into the bathroom by myself. Didn't tell anyone else what I was going to do. And um, I remember putting some out and thinking like, that looks like a little much. Mm-hmm. I got the, the screw it and mm-hmm. just did it anyways and i vaguely remember walking out of the bathroom but i remember telling them that i was okay to drive and that's literally the last thing that i remember Yeah. fast forward probably about 12 to 16 hours um i woke up in a different state um, woke up in tennessee i was in georgia before
0: so so what happened during that time i guess you were were you overdosing the whole time
1: Uh, yeah, I think for, it took about four hours, in between three and four hours for my friend to realize that, um, I needed to get to a medical help. My friend drove from Canton to Chattanooga and he was going like 90 miles per hour, he said, um, he was like hitting me in the chest and screaming the whole way and calling people kind of letting them in on you know something might be wrong and um you know he didn't know what to do with me yeah and, like that's something i had to explain to my family because they all wanted to point a finger and mm-hmm. blame somebody and um you know they they knew him and they would asked him they were talking to them on the phone while he was driving and he promised them that i hadn't been doing opiates and stuff mm-hmm. and that's the thing that really pissed my family off yeah but um You know, like, nobody really knows how to handle those situations. There's not classes or anything like that for, like, you never really know how you're going to handle something like that until you're in that situation. And, you know, the thing that I am truly thankful for it took him a while to get me there mm-hmm. but he got me there I got you You there. know I, I made it to the hospital and
0: and he got you to a world-class hospital yeah too, who?
1: what's up Erlinger <laughs> <laughs> yeah Seriously. Um, I see you there man they they totally saved my life mm-hmm. and I had I don't even know how many doctors came up to me after I woke up and they're like you know we worked really hard bringing you back but something else brought you back you know and I remember waking up.
0: So, what were the details of your overdose like? How many breaths were you breathing per minute? Do you remember that?
1: Like in between, it was like one breath every sixty to seventy seconds. The doctor told me that I was gray and cold, and that he wouldn't have bet a nickel on me. And yeah, he was he was in super shock when I looked at him. I remember opening my eyes and like looking around. You know, and honestly felt like a whole lot of peace, you know, because, like, I, re- I remember some of my first thoughts being like, well, mm-hmm. you can't talk yourself out of this one. <laughs> like, you know, this one's this one's different. Like, I knew yeah. right away that this one was different and that there wasn't any way I could talk my way out of it. Yeah. And I, I knew that you I was lucky. Help. I knew I was lucky. And, um. You know, and especially the past couple of years, like I've lost some good people
0: yeah.
1: um, to this, you know, epidemic, yeah. this war, and like.
0: Well, we're going to a funeral tomorrow.
1: Tomorrow, you know, we're going to a, to a funeral with a guy that you know I slept fifteen feet away mm-hmm. from for the last year.
0: Of like a brother that you fought to get your your lives back together.
1: Yeah, and his, you know, his family they're they're never going to be able to fill that hole. Never. like there's nothing they can fill that.
0: Yeah, and
1: yeah, you know, that was one of the one of the big lies that I told myself forever. Um, that you know I'm only hurting myself.
0: Mm-mm.
1: You know, like that was always the. Oh thing i had in my back pocket you yeah. know like I'm, just, I'm doing this to myself like i'm not doing anything to anyone else yeah. you know and when i was in the hospital from that on that last um, overdose you know i had the the breathing machine in I had that tube down my throat i had to sit there and watch what i was doing to mm-hmm. people it took that yeah. that excuse and that lie away. Yeah. I was watching firsthand and couldn't say anything about it.
0: Yeah. You saw your dad in the room. So what did that look like? I
1: remember seeing my sisters crying but smiling. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's a lot of women in my family. <laughs> 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 I mean they were all hysterical, yeah. you know. The first night my dad, you know, told everyone to go home that he would be there. And, you know, I'd kind of been in and out at that point, you know, but that night I was, I was pretty awake like for most of the night. I was in pain. I was Mm -hmm. in a lot of pain. Like when I first woke up, I wasn't really um, realizing how, how bad I had hurt my body. Mm -hmm. You know, I kind of just felt like I was, I'm just getting back in my body. And honestly, before the, way i can kind of describe like waking up was i felt like i was in the ocean like deep in the ocean and swimming up and like when i broke water is like kind of when i woke up so you know at that point like i'm you know my my sisters and mom and everyone had gone home and you know i just remember my dad being (laughs) over on this tiny little bed and um, at that point they had, they had tied me down because I kept trying to pull the, the breathing machine out because it, it was rough. Like, I was so thirsty, and it hurt. And I was, like, writing down on paper pretty, pretty quickly after I woke up, you know, communicating, which shocked them. They had told my whole family that I had gone so long without oxygen that it was, you know, a huge chance that, I mean, I was going to be a vegetable, or that I was going to be different. Um, I remember people coming in being like, "You are still you." (laughs) Um, But yeah, um, laying there that first night, um, my dad sleeping over in the corner in this tiny little bed, you know, and he and I had our estranged years and um, weaved in and out of being in touch with each other. I just I realized that you know, my sisters have these young children who all love me and look up to me and you know, I was for the first time I was afraid that I was gonna lose these people, you know, who've Mm -hmm. always stood by me. And you know, even my dad who I have frustrated, I'm his only son. I've frustrated that man so much know because he saw all this potential in me and i was just out there not using it you know and still as hard as it was you know he was he was right there for me when i needed him they never uh,
0: they never gave up on you they
1: never <laughs> did you know and i remember trying to shake and just like get his attention and he he was across the room i couldn't say anything i had that breathing machine and um it was basically just me and God at that point, mm-hmm. you know, like all the dust settled, uh, you know, everyone was off trying to recharge, you know, and it was just God right there, was playing his day, mm. you know, like all right, you ready? <laughs> and so I I've, I remember. Making the choice, you know, right then, like, I don't, I don't know what this looks like, but something's got to change, you know, like I've, I've got to, (laughs) you know, and immediately I started thinking about, you know, my, my friends, Joe folks, you know, I had another roommate, Spencer, um, who just passed away. I'm like I'd still talk to their families so much you know right. I still had to look at Joe's kids faces and mm-hmm. like I immediately like knew I needed to do do this you know because they couldn't they didn't get a chance to yeah. like, like I said like I knew I was lucky like it's, especially nowadays and like with my circle of friends we haven't had a lot of luck.
0: Mm-hmm. On people
1: coming back from those situations,
0: and you came back
1: twice, twice. You know, and I, am, um, I still get like survivor's guilt sometimes. Um, but like I do, I do know that I have put in a lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> to get can, to where I can
0: attest to that.
1: To get to where I am right now. Um,
0: so, so what does that look like, Brad, for, for people that don't, that don't know you? So you survived a second overdose and you distinctly heard God saying, okay, come on.
1: It was like a big blinking neon. Light, mm-hmm.
0: it's like, I, I
1: literally felt I've been running for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, trying to do it on my own for a long time. And literally I felt like he funneled me to that point. Mm-hmm. You know, my dog had passed away two months before that. And that's what kind of set off of me kind of having the screw it, you know? Mm-hmm. So waking up in that hospital, like knowing I needed some kind of change, you know, and I, it took me a while to even get really healthy enough to, to really start even looking at that option. Um, my dad let me come home to his house so they could kind of help nurture me and get me back healthy. I couldn't even walk upstairs for two or three weeks. Um, felt like I was 80 years old.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That was another huge reason why I was, like, ready for, you know, a change. Um, I I scared myself probably for the first time in my mm-hmm. life, honestly. Um, literally got the fear of God put in me. And, you know, my parents at first were like, all right, we're, we'll help you go to rehab. Um, you know, we're going to find like like a handful of them. We're going to look at them. We're going to find the right one. We're not going to make you go to any certain one. But immediately, like, oh, yeah. even with all that, <laughs> I was like...
0: Mr. Stubborn.
1: I was, I was scared of going to a faith-based place, you know? I don't know why... Uh, maybe subconsciously I knew that that's just like what I needed and it scared Mm -hmm. me. And, um, you know, I talked to a couple of friends that worked in treatment and put me in contact with people. And, um, my uncle Jace that works at North point who was, you know, prayed over me when I woke up on my first overdose, he was like, man, I really, really want you to come. Uh, look at this place up where I live and coming. And, you know, I I guess just to, you know, make, I, I respect my uncle a lot. I respect my dad a lot. And they were both teaming up on it. So I was like, I love you guys. Like, for y'all, I'm going to go look at it. Um, kind of already had made up in my mind that, no way am I moving to coming Georgia I'm gonna to go to this this year-long place I was thinking <laughs> you know three months three months seemed like a long time yeah. so um, when I heard year I was like yeah right <laughs> <laughs> um went and looked at it and um, you know my, my uncle set up a interview with <laughs> This Reno right here, mm-hmm, yeah. and, you know, we we started walking around and talking. I don't think he really knew that. I didn't know what
0: the heck was going on because <laughs> I wasn't supposed to do that. But Jace just, he has a way of, yeah, I want to come have lunch. I'm like, come on.
1: Yeah, I think yeah. I think about 30 minutes into it is when she realized, I was oh, like, God, this guy just overnosed. <laughs> <Is> this guy?
0: Because <laughs> you looked so good then.
1: Yeah, I mean, I didn't, that's you know another.
0: But you were not ready. You I were wasn't. you were so resistant at that point. And I was like, mm,
1: and I, was, mm. I still was you know dating a girl that I cared for immensely, and um, you know, I I knew that if I was going to walk into a year long place that like I was, I was saying goodbye to the life that I knew, you know. Which is hard for anyone, you know, even if your life is hard. <laughs> you know, like, I didn't, I was in the midst of living this life, but, you know, I was just bouncing from place to place, and, um, you know, I didn't realize, like, how bad my life had really gotten, mm-hmm. even after that overdose, you know, like, I was still telling myself that, you know, thing I could control it, you know, I, I got this, it hadn't really gotten me, mm-hmm. you know, Still, this inner battle, and so we came and looked at no longer bound, and um, you know, I think Rena, you knew that mm-hmm. by the end of it, I was like, "Thanks for the interview. Yeah. Nice to see you, maybe <laughs> Never. <laughs>
0: <laughs> bye <Bye-bye>. bye.
1: Um, and <laughs> at, at that point, you know, my dad had told me he was like, "That's the place. That's the only place I'm going to help you go to." You know, and I I haven't had insurance you know, since I was in college. So I wasn't going to be able to go to like any of these like plush places and, um, you know, and honestly, like as stubborn as I am and everything, you know, like I, I know that anything like that isn't going to, wasn't going to help me, you know, but, um, I end up going, getting, I started getting healthier. Um, and started looking for jobs and started looking at halfway houses and literally found one that I loved um everyone in the house seemed healthy and happy and like they had their stuff together and I put down my deposit in first months for that place and went and got back in a car that I was borrowing <laughs> and um was about to call, I can't remember if I was going to call my mom or my dad and tell them, you know, I'd found a place and that everything was going to be okay. And I just, like, felt this, like, voice inside of me that was like, you know, that's great, but you're not going to move there. Mm-hmm. You're going to go to that year-long place. And I was like, no. And I was like, yep. Um, and it was pretty loud and clear. No, and that was like, like i literally just put down like you know like a good chunk of money to go to that one place and i i knew like very clearly in my heart that it wasn't gonna happen i was i called my dad and he didn't believe me you know so i ended up going to his place and talking about it um and you know we we went from there yeah I I think it still took him like a week or two to really be believe me you know like he he was hearing me Mm -hmm. but I think he thought that I was just like all right this is what I just got to do right now to get through you know
0: so you went Mm -hmm. I'll never forget walking into the the dining hall and seeing you there I was like oh made it I was so happy yeah it was um And you were you were pretty you're pretty good at that point you know you were like I think you knew you knew what you needed to do and where you needed to be
1: yeah I mean like I knew that pretty clearly that that's where God wanted me to be Yeah. um not necessarily what I want where I wanted yeah. to be you yeah. know but it was very clear in my heart that that's where I didn't really understand but like I just knew that like I, I needed to listen to that. And I honestly thought that I was going to go in there and they were going to I was going to be like a a wolf amongst the sheep, you know. <laughs> and I got there and literally there are a bunch of dudes just like me. <laughs> Different backgrounds and everything of course, but um definitely realized pretty quick that I was in a place where some healing was go- was mm-hmm. done,
0: and so you were there. Your year-long program turned out to be a little bit longer than a year, right? Mm-hmm.
1: About fifteen months. That's honestly the way I was going. I'm I'm pretty pretty good that I got through in fifteen <laughs> months, because um, yeah, I had to start over the program twice. You know, that that stubbornness came out and um you know but i had a couple um a couple deals with god before i went in there that you know if these things happen then all bets are off and like mm-hmm. i'm good to go and you know some of those things happen and it's funny that like i had had those ground rules set you know um those plans or whatever that you know if this happens then all bets are off. I'm leaving. And I'm not going to feel bad about it. He even told my parents that, and, and, you know, uh, we were all in agreement and, and Then when those things happened and, you know, one time, especially, um, I'd almost got in a fight with a guy and, um, they told me that, um, they had a deal for us that, if we both decided to stay, that we could stay, but we had to start over. But if one of us wanted to leave, then we both had to leave. Very tricky. <laughs> and, you know, they, um, they're they like, we need an answer right now. And um, my friend that was involved with it with me, he was immediately like, yeah, um, definitely take it. And I was like, man, if y'all make me give an answer right this second, I don't think it's going to be the answer that any of us really want. Mm-hmm. I was like, you know, I, I think I needed an hour, mm-hmm. like, to myself to think this through. I was like, I immediately, you know, like, that was that was a deal-breaker moment. You know, that was my get-out-of-jail-free card. And um, I went and sat on the back porch of the the Redeemer, where all the main offices are, and it was a little screened-in area. And I'll be honest, uh, 50 minutes of that hour, I was like, <laughs> I always had a smile on my face, like, all right, mm-hmm. that's it, like, I'm done here. And um, literally the last 10 minutes, you know, I was like, but they didn't kick me out, you know. Like I felt, felt that little voice inside again that was like, You know, you could leave, but you could stay. It was another one of those times where I was like, dang it. (laughs) (laughs) What is this? You know? know, Because my whole thing, my Mm -hmm. whole life was if I didn't like what somebody was saying to me, you know, screw you. I'm going this (laughs) way. It's my way or the highway. And, you know, I always, I always chose to not you know sit there and listen to that or figure Mm -hmm. things out Mm -hmm. it was just really easy for me to start over somewhere else Yeah,
0: just to run I think you used the word run
1: just to run so yeah it's kind of and it hurt physically you know I knew when I made that choice I was like it's gonna the next week or two is gonna be reality of it setting in you know but um, yeah, because you were in one
0: class, so then you go back and you get a whole new class and start it's over. A big deal. It's so a big I think
1: deal. I think out of those fifteen months, I spent five and a half months in orientation. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we can laugh now, but oh, I know it was not goodness. funny at the
1: time. It wasn't. It's given me. We've been talking about resilience a lot. And, Like in the big scheme of things, like, you know, it's just a couple months. But the actual action of doing something different, I think that's probably the biggest things I I took away Mm -hmm. from that whole program was just not running, you know, and like all these like little things that would have made me run. Like I kind of like get to learn that I didn't have to, Mm -hmm. you know, and I started building that muscle up, you know, and now like, you know, like life comes at you from all different angles sometimes, you know, I spent, see, I'm 37 now and I'd say at least 20 of those years, I've probably been on my own for the most part, since I was about 17, you know, for 20 of those years, like I haven't done anything (laughs) (laughs) responsibly, Mm -hmm. you know? So now, you know, now that I'm, you know, trying to do right, it doesn't mean that like all those years of me running from problems are just kind of, those problems aren't going to go away. They're still there, you know? So they've kind of come flying at you all at once sometimes, you Mm -hmm. know, but, I know
0: your baptism video at North Point was such. Uh, it was such a moment for me, just knowing you for a few years. I can't imagine how your family felt. Um, your uncle who baptized you, and I'll I'll actually post the link to the video because it's just such a beautiful piece of storytelling, and it it tells your story in such a tight, concise way. And in there, you talked about your legacy what it could have been and what you want it to be. Can you share more about that?
1: Like I died. And, you know, that's, I realized that, you know, like if I had died, that's really all I would have been remembered for. Mm-hmm. You know, like uh, a guy who probably fun to party with and, you know, ended up taking it too far. And now, you know, what I feel like my purpose is and, like, what I want my legacy to be, I guess, is, like, I, I want to help people, mm-hmm. you know? Because, like, honestly, if if I was as far gone as I was, you know, and I've been able to come this far in this short amount of period, you know, like, I, I want to help other people. And you know, kind of selfishly too, mm-hmm. you know, like helping people helps me, you know, but like I didn't even realize like how unhappy and how lost I was, mm-hmm. you know, like this world is like we're in charge of what we do with our life and like the things that we want, like we're the ones that are going to get them, you know, mm-hmm. and somewhere along the way, like I, I lost that, you know. I see a, a lot of people, you know, like just even driving down the roads now, you know, I see people in, in chains and like mm-hmm. they don't even know they're in chains, yeah. you know, like that's, I didn't know I was mm-hmm. necessarily, that was like, you know, one of the, one of the biggest things, you know, it's like I didn't even like realize like how chained down I was, so um, I want to help people. Mm-hmm. I want to be a light I want to fight the good fight you know like I think a part of me always like hoped that one day I would wear like a three piece suit or something you know and like, I, th- I think God wants me like down on the front lines mm-hmm. and especially like I've been stayed and worked at No Longer Bound and you know like I'm down there still with these guys like just fighting that mm-hmm. fight you know and it's hard sometimes I still feel like I'm in one the one man at
0: a time that's how it how you say people one man at a time one woman at a time yeah so for somebody who is still struggling with addiction what, what would you say to them
1: humble yourself ask for help you know like i know me being a male and in, in our society for whatever reason we, we were raised to feel like we shouldn't ask for help and i think that everybody needs help at -hmm. some point in their life, you know. And, like, that's, for whatever reason, that was one of the hardest things for me to do. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't have this. I need help. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It was, for whatever reason, so hard for me to admit that. And so I imagine that, you know, some some people that, they might be having that same problem. And, you know, like, I was just want to want to say that you know like your life can be better even if you don't know that you want it to be better mm-hmm. i promise you you know like it gets better um it's a beautiful world and i would forgotten how good people are honestly you know like i've been out on the road and you know staying on people's couches for so long and you know i've I found myself in a place where um, people want to help just to help, you know, because like that's what, that's what we're supposed to do, we're supposed to connect, and we're supposed to help each other. Love one another. Love one another. I mean, I think, I think that that's really all Jesus wanted Mm -hmm. to get across, you know, it's like, hey, it's Kind of about love.
0: Love God, love your love your neighbor.
1: Love others like you want to be mm-hmm. loved. Love others like you want to love yourself. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Such an honor for me to know you. Um, I could get emotional just thinking about what could have happened. I'm so glad God spared your life and that you hung in there and you fought for life and your family didn't give up on you. And I mean, there's just so... It could have gone so terribly wrong in so many different directions at so many different times, but it didn't. And we're here today, and I think you would bring hope by sharing your story and your heart to help other people in a situation. I just think your, your future is so bright. And um, I thank you for, for, for being here and opening up your heart. I got one last question for you. So the word relevate means to uplift or to restore to good spirit. What words of hope would you like to share with those listening about addiction and recovery?
1: Just the, the word hope in itself, you know. It's a, that's a, a word that I ran from for so, so long. You know, my family always light candles of hope. I think that as long as hope is alive, you know that there's there's a chance for anyone struggling. Thank
0: you. Thank you, Bradley V. You're an amazing man and I am so glad to call you my friend. I'm
1: so glad to call you my friend. Thank
0: you. Thankfully Bradley's life was spared and for that I truly am so grateful. I can't imagine how his family must feel. While addiction is part of his story He's rewriting a greater one with Jesus at the wheel, a story of redemption and hope. Be sure and watch his baptism video. It's linked in the show notes of this episode. If you know or love someone in addiction, take comfort in knowing that recovery is possible. you're struggling yourself, you too can break the chains of addiction. Reach out and let someone know you need help. You can do it. Recovery is possible and an amazing life awaits. I'm Rena Olson, and this is Relevate.